going back to the idea that perfectionism is learned most of the time is you have to be careful of the people you surround yourself with. Because there are so many people around me right now who are so quick to tell me, oh, you got a typo here. Oh, you can't put that out. You got to reshoot that reel. And I used to listen to those people. I used to listen to those people and I used to let them stop me. And now I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put this out there. This is going to suck. I'm going to get like 10 views of my reel. That's okay. I'm going to learn. Move on next time. Today, we're going to be talking about done is better than perfect. Done is better than perfect. So welcome. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Hello, beautiful people. In case you don't know who I am, my name is Chris Doe. I'm a loud introvert with a really big mission, teach a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. Joining me up on stage to my left, your right, is Jewel. Jewel's a feisty problem solver, simplifying SEO for creative entrepreneurs. Rank on Google. And never worry about getting enough leads again. And to her left, to my far right, to your far right, is Martha. She is a luxury brand marketing strategist helping luxury businesses rebrand, master their positioning, and become magnetic. Our good friend Lolo will be joining us in a little bit, but I guess we'll introduce her when she's here. So Martha, here we are again. It's just like it's been a gazillion years since I've spoken to you last. What are we talking about today? Ah, Today we're talking about one of my favorite topics and it is done is better than perfect and the reason we're talking about this today is that we hear creators brag about being perfectionists all the time and it's almost worn as a badge of honor it's something that people are like yeah like the reason like my only <laughs> my only defect is that I'm such a perfectionist and we brow at it really, really. And we think it's like such a, like an awesome defect to have, like it makes us so great. And I learned something through my coaching journey that really transformed my life. And it was all about what is perfectionism actually? And what if it's the thing that has been in the way for me? between what I wanted, what I really, really wanted, and where I am today. And well, research shows that perfectionism happened, hampers achievement and it's correlated with depression, anxiety, addiction, and life paralysis. And after going deep into this work and working on my own idea of perfectionism, I really embrace on is better than perfect. Am I over it? No but it's like a constant thing. So I really wanted to bring this topic to the table and chat with you and Jewel and Lola when she joins about has this, how has, what has been our experience with perfectionism and what has been our relationship? What, 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 what was our relationship with perfectionism before and what it was now, what it is now. So Chris, I'll give it over to you. Yeah. You know, in design circles, in creative circles, we have a culture that celebrates people who are obsessed with perfectionism. I remember sitting at Art Center, there was a three by three talk hosted by Petrula Frontaikas, a friend of ours, my my peer, fellow instructor at Art Center, how it seemed like one person after the other was paraded onto the stage to talk about how obsessed they were about the curvature of an arc of a letter that they were drawing. 
And the more insane they went into the details, how they spent months drawing a letter form, the more the audience gasped with excitement and, and, and envy and respect and pride. So it's kind of not that strange that designers specifically leave the uh, academic circle and walk away with this thing that's like, I got to make it perfect. Got to make it perfect. I remember in my Nature of Materials class at Art Center, I had to make a desk unit. And everybody starts with an A. Every project, you start with an A. Every defect that the instructor can find, you get knocked down half a grade or a third of a grade. So you start with an A+, plus, you go down to A and A-. Minus, and so they, they're looking at it, holding it up to the light, running their hands across surfaces. So your desk unit has compounded angles. It's got um, parts where you can supposedly put paper clips in it. So it's, uh, the hole has to be perfect. All the edges have to be razor sharp. Like if you ran your finger on it really hard, you are going to cut yourself. So if they see that there's a little bull nosing on the edges, if the angles aren't perfect and they, they put it up to the light, they're squinting with their eyes, checking if it's true and square and the angles meet. And then you learn all these techniques on how to build a perfect desk unit. And even so, you get an A minus because it can't be perfect because you're not a machine, you're a human. And so you start to expect things in the real world to line up with how much care and concern you put into a block of wood. It literally is a block of wood, the desk unit. And so then I go and look at, at my contractors working on my office and I can see a, a warble in the wall and, and, and I'm putting my head next to this sheet of drywall and I'm like, this is not perfect. And it's starting to mess me up. It's making me upset. I thought I paid for perfection. I want perfection. And I look at the floor. Our floor at our office is not even, even, not even close. There's as much as like an inch and a half movement across the surface of the floor. And then when we sandblasted the ceilings, before we can get the new roof on, it rained, leaving water spots on the roof. And I had spent all this money sandblasting the ceiling. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to go through the dust and the mess and expensive to this again. So we had people climbing up on ladders, hand sanding, hand sanding the water stains off. This is what perfection looks like in the real world. Now, when there's an objective measure, it's insane, but at least you can hit it. But when it's an internal subjective measurement of perfection, it's impossible to hit because the, the metric for success moves all the time. You get a little closer, you move it farther away. And this is what leads, I think, to a lot of people suffering paralysis by analysis, just overthinking. I don't want to make my first video because it needs to be perfect. I don't want to make my first Instagram carousel because it needs to be perfect. I want everyone to love it. There can't be a single mistake, can't be a typo, um, a, a grammatical or punctuation mistake, a typesetting mistake. The color has to be dialed in perfectly. And so no wonder people are still working on their portfolio sites. Mr. Ben Burns this week released a work in progress of his personal site. And he admitted to the camera, this is the first project I've ever had that I've not completed. Why is that? What's going on? And if you're joining us today, maybe you are suffering from some of that perfectionism, the beast, and it is one of the three beasts. Back over to you. Thank you so much for those stories, Chris. I love uh, the story of the furniture because it, it reminded me of doing models at school. And I had to do a bike model with resin and it had to work. And it was like the... I forgot how it's called, the compressor, I think. that Some part of the bike had to actually work and we did it with like 
um, straws back then. And it was crazy. And I remember one of my classmates was super extra and we were feeding him through like, he didn't want to touch food because he didn't want his project to be contaminated by anything. And we would sleep there in the workshop. And I think this is a conversation we had before and how like, this is so normal in design. But I love what you said about like things we even avoid doing because of like perfectionism. And I think you don't know this story, but I wanted to launch my jewelry line for 10 years and I had a business plan and I had everything ready. I had the whole thing. I had a collection and I never did. I was so chickened out by the idea of failing. I was so, af so afraid of not making it. I wouldn't say that. I would say like, oh, it's not, it's not ready. And I need to work on this and I need the packaging to be better and all of these things until I was 10 years passed and I read my business plan from when I was 21 years old and I wish I had trusted that girl that had so much, so much courage and ideas and potential. And now when I launched my second business, I told my coach, why do I feel this resistance? She was like, you waited 10 years for the other thing. Why are you surprised by this? Like, this is going to come and this is going to happen. Push through the resistance, do it anyway. And I feel like... <laughs> For me, it's also part of embracing the suck. I love what you said about like not wanting to do the video, right? Because what if it wasn't perfect? So how I remember you also said that when Jose was like, let's do this video, you were barely speaking in the first video. We're just showing up. So how was making your first video and seeing it? That was terrible. I couldn't see it. I could not watch the video. So I think probably for the first few months, I never saw any of our videos. I just read the comments and responded to the comments. And that was it. The team was like, you want to prove this edit? Like, use your best judgment. Do what you think is right. And back then, there wasn't a lot of heavy editing. We basically released a video and they just trimmed the, the head and tail off of it. And we just released. And there weren't good videos. And there's this, um, this tweet that I saw from We Are Not Wizards. It's wonderful. And I made a carousel out of this. And it, it got some like 30,000 likes, I think, last time I checked. So we are, wiz we are not wizards. Said starting is the hardest part. Your first your first podcast will be awful. Your first video will be awful. Your first article will be awful. Your first art will be awful. Your first photo will be awful. Your first game will be awful. But you can't make your 50th without making your first. So get it over with and make it. That pretty much sums up everything, I think. Like we want to be at the end receiving the gold medal, the, the the grand prize of the design competition in France. And we're sitting there in Cannes and celebrating. We did it. We finally did it. We captured the grand prize. But we're not going to get it because we never tried that idea out. In fact, we never even applied to that agency. We didn't apply to the agency because we didn't, we didn't do our first design work. We didn't do our first design work because we were too scared to go to design school. And I was reading in the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F by Mark Manson. He says, we're afraid of success. You know, people have said that to me before. Not to me, but they've said it. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. It's not that you're afraid of failure. You're afraid of success. And what does that mean? It's better for you to accept the, the reality of your life not being where it's supposed to be versus you having to face the fact that you might not be as good as you think you are. So I would rather toil in darkness and anonymity suffering, not making money, because I've accepted that to be my reality. But if I were really truly to try to put myself out there and find that no one's interested in my work, that is more devastating to me than living in anonymity, not making any money. It is weird. 
So I think a lot of people won't release a piece of work, won't do something because in their mind, they still hold out hope that they're as good as they think they are. And if you don't have to test it, you'll never know. And it's better to leave those things untested. Thank you for that. I had one of my trainers for coaching said like, I used to never call ball eight. And and this is a pool uh, metaphor. And she was like, I will never say what I wanted because what if I don't get it? So I will never call ball eight. Like I would say, um, I don't really want it. I mean, it would be cool, but whatever. Because it's so much less scarier to not say what we want. But how freaking cool it is to say it and then try it and not get it and then try it again and then get it because then we're getting what we're saying we're going to get it and it just feels different it lands different and going back to what you said about like being afraid of our success i really love this quote from marianne williamson that says our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure it is our light not our darkness that mo most frightens us we ask ourselves who i am to be brilliant gorgeous talented and fabulous your playing small doesn't serve the world. I like really appreciate that quote. And on that note, I love to bring Jewel into the conversation and hear from her. Like what is, what was your relationship to perfectionism and what is it now, Jewel? I'd love to hear from you. Man. So I grew up with parents, old school Asian parents, where if I didn't do something right in exactly the way they wanted me to do it, I would do it again and I would do it again and I would do it again. And they didn't give an F if it took me 20 times. They didn't give an F if I had to stay up all night on a school night to get this done to the way they wanted it. And when I thought back recently in another room on Clubhouse, I realized, you know what? Like we think of perfectionism as something that we just innately come with, that we suffer from. But I think a lot of the times it's taught to us whether it's through the channel of our design school and the culture, whether it's our parents, whatever. And it's something that if we don't realize was maybe not innately a part of us, we think it's something we can't change. And so it, it pursued me my entire life. At school, I was always that person. I would get the best grades. If I wasn't top of the class, I would, I would just be beside myself. I would have to get that perfect grade. And I was always pursuing the perfect quarter grades, the report cards, everything. And it followed me into my corporate career, right? Law school is, is not really helpful for countering that kind of idea of perfectionism. If anything, they drill it into you that you have to be more of that way. And so by the time I got into my corporate career, I was just, I was fixated in that way. And at Amazon, I remember saying this one thing and I'm completely embarrassed that I ever said this. But in my sheer arrogance, I told somebody that I never made mistakes. Like, how ridiculous is that, right? Like, who doesn't effing make mistakes? But I actually said that. And I remember the person I said it to, she just looked at me, right? Like anyone would at any kind of a-hole who said something like that. She, she was just like, that's ridiculous. Like, everyone makes mistakes. And of course they do. But at that time, I actually believed that about myself. And so, of course, inevitably, when I did make a mistake, it would just come crashing down. And then the other part, something that Chris said is, you know, you got to face the fact that you might not be as good as you think you are. That hit me so hard when I left Amazon to start my photography business. And I wasn't marketing because of exactly that thing. I did not want confirmation from customers to tell me that I sucked. So I wasn't doing marketing was deliberately not taking 
clients, I was like, I didn't even want to build my portfolio because I was like, holy shit, this all sucks. This is fugly. I'm embarrassed. I can't show anybody this. I'm, I'm embarrassed to even give away these photos for free. So that's how perfectionism has really hurt me in my life. And, you know, you've probably heard me tell this story before where because of that perfectionism, that fear of facing the fact that I wasn't perfect and that I wasn't even that good, to be honest, it cost me two years of making real money in my business. And so today I now am at this point where I'm creating content and I keep reminding myself, you said you want this thing. You said you want to get to 10K on Instagram. I'm not even close, but man, if I don't get this stuff out the door, I'm never going to get any closer. And when I hang around with certain people and you'll notice there will be people in your life who don't see it the way you do. So now I'm thinking hmm, 70%, 80%, that's going to be good enough, right? If it accomplishes my goal that I said that I wanted, 70, 80% is going to be good enough. I can I can put it out there and maybe there's something that bothers me, but you know what? Life is too short to be worrying about stuff like that. And I think the other part of it is going back to the idea that perfectionism is learned most of the time is you have to be careful of the people you surround yourself with because there are so many people around me right now who are so quick to tell me, oh, you got a typo here. Oh, you can't put that out. You got to reshoot that reel. And I used to listen to those people. I used to listen to those people and I used to let them stop me. And now I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put this out there. This is going to suck. I'm going to get like 10 views of my reel. That's okay. I'm going to learn. Move on next time. So that's been my journey. It hasn't been pretty, but it's it's there. Back over to you. Thanks for that, Joel. I love what you said about like, what if 75% was good? Um, because I... I'm going to go back to something that Chris, I'm going to go jump to something that Chris once shared about the members of the pro group. And he was saying, there's people here that love learning. So there'll be in all the calls, all the videos, there'll be live, they'll watch the recordings, but they will not take action. Uh, there's the other ones that are taking action so much that are not back here to come and help the others that are learning from the videos and the calls. And that really stuck with me. And I was thinking, man, I was that person. I was sitting there and eating and eating and learning more information. I had a friend tell me, you could be teaching a PhD in jewelry by now, by all the stuff you know, and you haven't shared anything with the world. What does it serve you to know all that information? And I am like Chris, when he was saying yesterday that, that he will take the books and read them, my boyfriend makes fun of me because every trip I am like, but I need all of them. Like, it's really hard for me to take. This is a trip. I've only taken two books with me and it feels weird because normally I like I'm like five and I switch between them. Um, all of this to say that it feel like last year was a moment I started sharing from everything I was consuming. And for me, that was, was make a difference, like what made a difference. But it's scary to suck at something. And um, on that, <laughs> when I was learning to coach, I was so, I thought, I thought I was such a terrible coach and I left the room one day. I was like, I'm never going to come back. Like I got my feedback I got was so sad and depressing that I was like, I am not going back to the room. And to your point, Jewel, I was always like in Mexico, I grew up like best grades, like, like are the thing that we need. So as much as my parents were loving, they were also like really uh, high achieving, both of them. So I'm like, I need to bring in the best. I never failed a class ever, ever in my life. So when I failed my coaching exam, my mom was like, yeah, right. 
what actually happened? And I'm like, I failed. She's like, no, what's what's happening? And I'm like, no, for real, I fail. I'm going to do it again. And that's how it works. And she was like so shocked about it. And I was too. But my coach told me, I am so happy you failed. And I was so angry. <laughs> I was like, have you, Catherine? I really don't want to talk to you now. Um, she was like, no, no, no. Because you're learning something with this. You're learning to get back up and do it again. Even when you are like, F this. I don't even want to be a coach. That was my first reaction to it, right? So that was a great experience at my, like, what, 31 years old? I wish I could have, I would have done that sooner. But I think for me, Chris, the next question is, okay, you saw the video. Um, it wasn't great. You said, actually, it was not a good video. How did you get up and do it again? Because I love to share a bit on that, but I love to hear from you and then from Jewel on that. Sure. I'm going to take a poll in the room. Uh, I'm going to open it up. I closed it for one second. And the poll is this, is a bunch of people here, if you're self-described, uh, self-identified as a creative or a designer, there's some form of you that's necessary for you to want to make things better, to improve things, to a point in which you go to the far extreme that unless it's perfect, it's not going to be done. We get that part. But the question that I wanted to ask you, and you can raise your hand in one second, wait for the prompt and then raise your hand and just keep it up for a second, which is this, is how many of you strive to be an innovative person, to think innovatively? If that's one of your goals, to be innovative, go ahead and raise your hand right now. Okay, a bunch of the hands are going up. Wow, the board is lighting. Oh, this is the most amount of people that have raised their hands. It's still going. Okay, I'm going to assume almost everybody in this room should raise their hand. Maybe they're scared to raise their hand. Maybe they don't know how to raise their hand, but nobody wants to be. What is the opposite of innovation? What is that word, Martha? I couldn't hear Stagnation. It. Yeah, nobody wants to stagnate. No one wants to be um, obsolete. Okay, so there's a bunch of people who raise their hands. Now, here's the problem, okay? Here's the problem. So over 72 people, whatever that number was. You can leave your hands up. It'll be okay. We're not going to just randomly grab you. Is this that in order for you to innovate, you have to make mistakes. Innovation is inefficient. Innovation is messy. Think about the Wright brothers. How many times did they try something before they found success? Almost every great invention comes from a lot of trial and error. In fact, Companies, Fortune 500 companies that spend a good portion of their money in R&D, research and development, tend to be the most cutting edge. That seems natural to us. But if we turn it to a single person, ask yourself, how many times are you trying something that you know has a low probability for success? How many times are you trying a different typeface that you normally don't use or a medium that you don't normally work in? And how can you do this? So if you make videos for a living... How many times have you tried a new technique? How many times have you totally designed the process to, to break you, for it to be messy, for it to be ugly? Those are key ingredients of innovation. Uh, Jeff Bezos says innovation and failure as inseparable twins. You have to try lots of things. One of the most innovative minds in the, last, uh, in the 21st century is Steve Jobs. We only seem to recall the hits. Anybody remember the 20th anniversary Mac or the Apple Newton? their first PDA, their personal digital assistant. You remember all these things that they released, the Cube, the Mac Cube? Where did that go? So many things they tried and it didn't work out. But as long as they have enough success, they wash out 
the failures, the attempts at doing different things. And oftentimes, their ideas were just ahead of where the market was, so they would just return to it later when the market was ready. So when we're talking about videos, the question that you asked me, Martha, is how do we keep moving forward? I never looked at the video as the goal, as the prize. Making the video was about learning to love the process. My business coach, Kier McLaren, would always tell me, seek progress, not perfection. And then he would say other things like, focus on the process, not the result. So when we went to pitch for a new business and we didn't get the work, a lot of times everybody would get really upset, deflated. Um, They would lose their motivation. They would get depressed. They would feel incompetent. And Kier would say, what do we do in our process that can be improved? Focus on that. Each and every time you go to bat, improve one thing. And over time, we started to win jobs on a more frequent basis. And we started to develop a system, a protocol, a whole process of how we pitch, a formula, if you will, so that we went from winning 20% of the jobs to winning 75% of the jobs. Yeah, that's really where we had the big breakthrough. And that's how I know how to do what it is that I know how to do today. I was brave enough to get on the call, try something, fail, lose a job, pick myself back up and try again. So you, you guys know I quote Jim Rohn all the time. Jim Rohn, he wrote the book, um, Seven Strategies for Wealth and Happiness. He's the godfather of the business philosophy world. He's the one who influenced Tony Robbins, who influenced a whole bunch of other people. Jim Rohn said, success leaves clues. I think that's a great quote. I think a better quote, if I may be so humble, is failure leaves better clues. So success leaves clues, for sure. If you follow successful people, you'll see what they do. And do as they do, and you'll be successful. So goes the theory. But failure leaves better clues. To quote Ryan Holiday in his book, The Obstacle is the Way, in the obstacle, in the failure, is a complete set of instructions on how to succeed. The problem is people look at the failure and they don't want to see it for what it is. It's a gift. So you can't tell me, sitting back in the crowd, in the audience, like, I simultaneously desire to be perfect while also wanting to be innovative. They're diametrically opposing ideas. Now, I'm happy to debate that. At some point, we need to bring people up, Martha, and have them debate that with us. I've got more to share, but I'm going to pause here. Back to you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I love your quote, uh, your take on like failure leaves better clues and how you went through and kept going to get that breakthrough. And I feel like breakdowns, and this is something my coach tells me all the time. Um, she says, breakdowns are the way to the breakthrough. There won't be a breakthrough unless we have a breakdown. But we really want to kind of jump or skip that part <laughs> and just have the breakthrough and just have the growth and tie it out with a nice bow. So I love this. And I just wanted to actually ask you about something that came to my mind uh, that I, for me was a really cool story when I heard you speak about this. When you started pitching brand strategy and you got a lot of pushback in the beginning or a lot of no's, can you tell us a little bit about that? And I want to bring in Jill to the conversation. Yeah, I had it said in my mind that I wanted to get paid for my thinking. And I got the idea from my friend Fabian Gerhalter, who worked with David C. Baker. Back then, David C. Baker would charge you $10,000. You'd have to pay for his flight, his hotel. He'd fly in the night before in a decent hotel. He'd come to your office. He'd work with you for one day. And then he would go home and send you a report, $10,000. And back then, that blew my mind. For context, when I started out in advertising, 
This is in 1995. I was working at Colin Weber in Seattle. Um, there were it's just some murmurings of a hotshot copywriter, and her rate was two thousand dollars a day. And back then, I made forty thousand dollars a year. A year, so she made one twentieth of what I made in a day, and that just blew my mind. And people were like, "She must be really good." And I was thinking, "She must be good for people to pay her that much." So that was my high water benchmark, $2,000 a day. And for the next 15 years, I never knew someone who charged more per day than that, an advertising copywriter. And so when I heard about David C. Baker coming in to help Fabian, I was like, are you going to do it? And I was just super anxious to hear whether or not he was going to pay David to do this. He was like, I think so. I think so. I'm like, oh my God, I I so want you to do this because I need to know what a person does for 10,000 bucks. Luck would have it. He did it. David did his thing. Fabian got the value from it. And that was like an inception moment for me that another human being could charge another human being 10,000 bucks and they could feel satisfied with that. So I became obsessed with this number, $10,000. So when I learned how to do brand strategy uh, through Jose, through the core framework, I told Jose, I need to charge for strategy. I'm, this is super valuable. Why would I give this away for free? He goes, okay, Christo, you're a cocky bastard. I'm sure you're going to do it. And so I started going around and anybody that would talk to me, I'm like, yes, yes, I can help you. But in order for me to do this, I have to charge you $10,000. And like, for what? Well, to talk to you, to figure out your problem, to figure out what the possible answers might be. But mind you, I'm not going to make any inquiry. I'm just going to give you a document of what we talked about. And they're, they're looking at me like, mm, sounds good. Not for me. So one person after the other for a whole year, they would just say, no, no. One person came really close. He's like, I'm ready to go. I'm like, you sure? He's like, yes. Then radio silence, nothing. And then eventually- Do you remember how many, sorry, how many no's you got? I would say probably between four to eight. I I don't remember exactly. But, you know, it's not that I could sell brand strategy to that many people when I I just had learned it and I just kept asking. And the person who said, yeah, let's do it, just didn't follow through. So I'm like, shoot. But eventually one person said yes and we did it. It was glorious. Then I was thinking- this is too little. <laughs> so after the very first time I got it, I'm like, no, I need to charge more. I got, it has to be 20,000 bucks. This is valuable stuff that I'm doing. Oh yeah. And then it went to 30,000, 50,000, and then it went back past $100,000. But yeah, you have to go through a couple of no's for sure. But I was determined. I really love that because I... I think that when we hear no, a lot of us just like get discouraged. I remember hearing no, and then I was like, maybe I'm not great. Maybe this is not for me, maybe whatever. And then my coach told me, you know how many no's I got when I was starting to work as a coach? And she's like this one of the smartest people I know. She has an MBA. She has like work, used to work for the government and left that federal cushy economist for the government job to be a coach. And she was like, I got 37 no's. And I personally think that that could have probably crushed my ego (laughs) just getting no one after the other but I now she has a business that she loves she built it completely around her and it is beautiful so I totally see what's on the other side right and I love what you said because I started at 2k now I sold my first one for 15 and I was like somebody paid me fifteen thousand dollars for this and then I see like the value of, again, continuing and going and, and, and racing and of course improving it. Like what I sold when I was at 2K is not what I'm selling now. And it's a different thing because I've done it so many times. But I also would love 
to hear. And I know Jewel has a similar story with her photography and how she went from not earning money into earning money. So I love to go there. What exactly was the question? So how was your, you said that for two years you waited and you were not making any money. It was just an expensive hobby. What was the thing that changed that? Because I'm just so curious if you had to do anything with this. So it was a, a certain lineup of circumstances. So basically, like, Chris, where have you been? Like all my life, like back then, five years ago, I needed somebody like you to tell me these things about innovation being inefficient, that it's messy, that you have to get through this pain in order to get to the good stuff. Like it's it's just not possible. Like we, we watch the movies and we think, oh, you, you might practice a little bit. No one's going to see you mess up and just magically you'll arrive at the at the stuff. You're going to be the big man, you know, and I was no different. And so what happened was three circumstances. Number one, I went out to dinner at a workshop with a world famous wedding photographer. This is a guy I don't know. I want to guess he charges probably more than 25, more than 30K per wedding easily. He's he's really famous. And I asked him a question at dinner, like, how do you build rapport with your, uh, your, you know, your subjects? Because you look at his photos and they are amazing. And he doesn't even have that many like mess up photos. He's not like a spray and pray type of photographer. And I was like, okay, it's got to be about the rapport. And like all photographers, I was like, it's got to be about the gear. It's got to be about the lighting equipment. I'm not that good at Photoshop. You know, I'm not, I'm paying attention to everything except the fact that I don't have confidence. And so this guy at dinner in front of all these people, he was telling me, like, he looks at me, he kind of ignores the question about rapport. And he just looks at me. He's like, you have no confidence. You need to work on that. And he says this at a table of, you know, maybe 10 people. They're my peers. And I felt like I'd been punched in the gut. So... It's a dinner. I can't exactly scurry away and go cry in a corner. So I just kind of suck it up. I'm like, yeah, okay, thank you. You know, I say thank you. I don't tell him, well, that was mean. That sucked. Like, could you have told me that in private? Whatever. You know, he's like world famous. I value his time. About two weeks after that, I'm kind of sulking in my misery. I'm feeling so sad for myself playing the world's smallest violin. And I'm watching yet another course, probably like my 200th course by that point. <laughs> and, and I come across this thing, yet another world famous photographer. If you know her, her name is Lindsay Adler. And she talks about how in the beginning of her journey as a photographer, she sucked. She sucked and she even showed some of the photos, some of the beginning videos. And I'm like, wow, those were bad. Now I feel so much better about myself. I know that sounds terrible. And then... A week after that, I'm watching yet another video. I'm still in my content consumption mode, trying to get all the tools perfect together, trying to learn everything under the sun before I actually just go out and take some bleeping photos. So yet another person was talking about everybody sucks when they start out. And you know what? Right now in this moment, you probably know more than other people out there. There are other people who don't know as much as you do, but they're out getting theirs. They're out there making money, even though they're not as good as you are. They don't know as much as you. They're not as talented as you. And that's not stopping them from making money. So why are you? And that was finally the moment the switch kind of flipped in my head. Back over to you. I love that so much. And before we continue the conversation, I just want to acknowledge that Lola, our friend, just joined. And today is her birthday. So happy birthday, Lola. Thank you. Happy and thank birthday. you to everybody in the room who's DM'd me. I love you all. This is a wonderful way to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about perfectionism. 
Yes. Um, I just wanted to say something to Jewel real quick. Jewel, I've been waiting for you. I've been here since 2014. So when you say, where were you five years ago? I was waiting for you to find me. And I should have made more content. I should have been more active on different platforms. But I'm here and we finally got to meet on Clubhouse. And then we're in the pro group together. So we're here. We're finally here. But maybe you're a young Jewel out there listening to this and thinking, I needed to hear this today. I have to start taking a different approach. Because we know this, all of us, whether we want to admit or not, as petty as it might sound, as self-centered as it might sound, somebody out there is more successful doing work that's worse than you. That's it. Somebody out there is more successful doing work that's worse than what you're doing. And, and you're sitting there and you might get together with your high society art design friends and like drink champagne glasses and the flute with your pinky rays and like, oh, that works. Per- that person's work is so pedestrian. Oh, I mean, I could just, if I had the opportunity, if I, if I, if, 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 and you're kind of stuck in that space and that their work is hanging on the wall in the gallery, fetching high dollars while you're still thinking about like, what am I going to paint? What am I going to make? Still struggling through that. There's a couple ideas I want to share with you guys. So, Jewel, when, when that person at the table told you, you know what, you're just not confident enough, that's a mindset problem. And we said that you learn things from your parents. Your parents told you everything must be perfect. Your grades must be perfect. Put yourself together. Speak perfectly. Have perfect posture. You learned all that stuff. I have good news for you. Yeah, I do. What you learn, you can unlearn. Ah, so it's not like your hair color or the color of your eyes or how tall or short you are. These things you can change. You have agency over what you currently believe. Yes, habits and routines are hard to change, but they don't change by themselves. You have to just adopt a new habit, a new routine, a new way of thinking, a new lens, and you need to reframe. I know a lot of things are not your fault, but you must be 100% responsible. When you take responsibility for it, then things can change. Today could be the last day that you have this thought in your mind. Because tomorrow, you could change. That's the beauty of the human mind. It can imagine things that have yet to happen. So first you imagine it, you believe it, and then you put in the work. And it'll be painful. You'll be scared. People will doubt you. But do it despite what they say, in spite of what they're saying. And you can get through it. And my team knows this. We have meetings when we do have meetings, based on our other call about meetings, you know, I don't like meetings. When we do have meetings, generally speaking, people who work for you are scared. Their, their overriding fear is, are you going to replace them? Are you going to fire them? And they're, they're driven by an old idea, which is, if I mess up, I'm going to get fired. So you'll notice a lot of times when the, when the corporate culture, uh, when there's like a round of layoffs happening, What does everybody do? Stay below the radar. Do not stick out, right? If you stick out, it's like that game at uh, at the arcade, the mole, whack-a-mole, the mole pops up and boom, it gets pounded in the head. So that's corporate America. We try to disappear. We don't want to stand out. So you don't do anything. You don't take any risks. In our company, it's the exact opposite. I said, I will never fire you for making a mistake. If you keep making the same mistake over and over again, 
that's a different issue. That means you're not learning. But I would not fire you for trying new ideas. You have a funny skit you want to do? Let's do that. You want to build sock puppets and try to like have it, try to teach a lesson on pricing? Let's try that. I don't care. I'll try anything once, but try. I love that so much. And I think it reminded me of what I thought whenever I got invited to the meeting to the CEO in my first job that I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> um, I'm going to get fired. And I was ready. And then I got the, the increase in salary. Right. And I just did the same thing with my assistant. I was like, hey, I need to talk to you. And it was about I don't remember even what, what it was something small. And she was like, I swear to you, I thought you were going to fire me for one mistake she had made. Um, so anyway, I love that you bring it to the table, Chris, and I want to pass the mic to Lola. I mean, so uh, just hearing, hearing you all talk about this, it reminds me of yesterday, literally, I was in a meeting and it was with the chief marketing officer of a real estate company I work with and one of her direct reports. And he had messed up. Like, I hope he's not here. <laughs> he knows. We're good friends. It's fine. He had messed up. This was the fix it meeting. And in that fix it meeting, he completely sort of spiraled into permission sort of mindset. Should I? Should I do this? Should I do this? What do you think we should do? He let that one mistake get in the way of the reality that his job is literally to have opinions and perspectives and his job is not to always be right. So even worse than making a mistake is letting that mistake scare you into not fixing it and putting in, you into a place of, well, I'm not the right one, so someone else should. That's literally the way that you fail the people that you work for, whether they're your clients or your bosses. You stop exercising the authority they pay you for. They don't pay you to be right. They pay you to come up with things so they don't have to, and then they evaluate and help you shape those things. So I actually wrote a LinkedIn and Instagram post inspired by this and I'll, I'll pause there, but this part of the conversation really just inspires me to like ask us all and it relates to done is better than perfect, but also expression is better than silence. I think that's one sort of swim lane of this concept that's really important as you get to higher levels of your career. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to our conversation. Have you guys read the book Art and Fear? Anybody on stage read Art and Fear? Okay. Art and yeah. Fear is a book that my business coach, Keir McLaren, you're going to hear his name a lot if you're talking to me, written by David Bales and Ted Orlin. And there was an experiment, a story that they share in the book. And, and this is the juicy story. It's referred to a lot when people are speaking about this topic. So it goes something like this. The ceramics teacher announced uh, on opening day that he was dividing the class into two groups. All those, uh, like all those on the left side, um, he said, you would be graded solely on the quantity, quantity of the work they produce. And all those on the right, solely on the quality. And he told them the grading procedure and how it was gonna work, okay? So half the class, quantity, half the class, quality. A bunch of art students making ceramics. Okay, here's how he's gonna grade it. He said on the final day of class, I'm going to bring in my scale and weigh the work of the quantity group. If you have 50 pounds of pottery, you get an A, 40 pounds, a B, and so on. Just by weight, crazy. Those being graded on quality, 
need to produce only one pot, but it must be perfect to get an A. Can have no flaws. Clear. Okay. What the heck happened? What do you think happened here? So, fast forward to the end of the semester. Come grading time. Here's the surprising thing. The works of the highest quality were all produced by the group being graded for quantity. Shocker. So it seems that while the quantity group was busy churning out piles of work and learning from their mistakes, this is the key, the quality group sat around theorizing about perfection and in the end had little more to show for the efforts than grandiose theories and a pile of dead clay. So put yourself in this class, everyone. Were you in that group that were told to make the best thing, just make one thing that's perfect, or just to make things? So it turns out in making, you learn. It's impossible not to learn. We all want experience. We all want to become masters of our craft, whatever it is that you do. And that comes through tons and tons of practice. We understand that, I think, logically, but emotionally, we can't get over this idea that we actually have to suck for a while, that we have to toil, that it has to. there's some suffering involved, some pain. The avoidance of the pain is actually the thing that causes more pain. It's kind of ironic that way. Back over to you. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, I was telling my coach recently, and I also speak a lot about my coach because I talk to her every week and she's the person I probably speak the most about everything I'm going through. And I was telling her like, no, I cannot stop stressing out about this or worrying about this. And she was like, it doesn't sound like you're doing a lot by stressing about it. Like it doesn't sound that you're moving the needle anyway. So I love what you said about like, it can be more painful than just like pushing through even when the moment is not at the moment is not enjoyable and we are suffering through it. Um, I want to go to like, I think for me, this embracing the suck conversation is interesting. And me and Jewel were speaking briefly after yesterday's conversation about how we didn't, because when you said I didn't like my voice on the, on the, that you didn't like to listen to yourself and you didn't like your voice in the beginning until your sunset, that you're great. And how much of an impact that was for you. I was telling her that for the very first four or five podcasts I was invited, I did not listen to them. I actually told them, you are free to publish without me giving you a green light. I don't want to see them. And I really refused to listen to them because I was like, I'm gonna be terrible. I think listening to myself coach was like painful as hell, honestly. I was like, oh my God, I could have said this. I could have it done better. Like I could only see it with critical eyes. And as much as I love learning right from the past, it was really hard for me to swallow that pill. That being said, um, I was telling her that during Mario's conference that you were speaking and I was invited to speak, it was the first time that I actually listened to myself and I was present and I told uh, Jewel, it was actually better than I expected. And of course there were things that I was like, oh, I could have done better, but I was just also enjoying the moment and listening to myself. And I, at this point, I don't know what switch, honestly, and what I was able to listen to myself. And I know, of course, now you said you have like over 1300 videos. So from the very first video where you were like, I didn't even, they were not great videos. I didn't like them. I barely spoke to now. I think for me is like, what are the practical ways we embrace the suck, first of all? And then what is the thing for you that switches that from not being able to like even go back to that and learn from it? Because I love you said that. Like I always ask them, like, give me feedback, tell me. 
But like, okay, great. How do you embrace the suck and move from there? Yeah, I think it was Jack Canfield who said this. I'm not sure. He wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. It was a period of time when I was reading a bunch, bunch of things. I can't remember where I got this from, but I think it's Jack Canfield. Hopefully it's correct. He said it's really important for us to have big goals, big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Because when you set these big goals, it kind of aligns what you need to do. And then you activate the loss of attraction and focus and concentration in your favor. But he said it's not as important that you achieve your goal, but the person you become in the pursuit of the goal. And so if you forget the big, hairy, audacious goal part, you have to love the pursuit, the person you become, the personal transformation, the personal development that happens. You have to love learning. You have to love the process. And I was chatting with Mo about this. They said, you know, if you don't like to play basketball, don't play basketball. But don't play basketball thinking you're going to be drafted into the NBA. And if the reason why you would play basketball and the only reason why you would play basketball is to be like in the all-star game in the NBA, then you won't start because the probability of that happening is freaking really, really low. And we can all see that, right? If, if you have children, if you have a friend, it's like, you know what? I'm going to be in the NBA. You're like, shoot. Okay. And then the rest of us say, well, if I can't be in the NBA in the all-star game, I'm not going to even play. So you deprive yourself of the pleasure of just learning a sport, of keeping yourself healthy, of developing friendship and community around the love of basketball. And you might not be Division One or Division Two or whatever it is. You might not be All-State national champion, but you can keep yourself healthy, active, loving the sport while watching from afar that people do at the very highest levels. So it's okay for us to do something because we love it and we enjoy it and we want to get better at it. And I think if you focus on that, it's going to make everything else much, much easier. This is about personal growth, personal development, not about the result. So a lot of times people will say, well, what do you want? Why are you doing this? Like, why are you becoming a brand strategist? Why are you into WebEx or Web UX and UI? Because I want to be rich. That's the wrong answer. Not from a judgment point of view, but from a practical point of view. See, so people who pursue money, when the money doesn't appear, they start to lose steam and momentum and drive. And so they're in it, they're in their UX class, and it's like, oh gosh, I, the money seems so far away. I think you become rich as a byproduct of the pursuit. You love the pursuit, you play the game, you play it long enough that you actually get good at it, and eventually doors open, opportunities happen. I want to point out something because it's totally relevant right now. How many conversations have happened in the last 48 hours of green room versus clubhouse. So debates are flying back and forth, both on Green Room and on Clubhouse, which is better, which is this. And I just think, oh my God, this is another one of those moments of shiny object syndrome. Like is one platform inherently superior to the other? I do not know. Some have better features, uh, but it's not inherently that different. But you know what's happening? Here's my theory. And if you're a big Green Room Clubhouse advocate one way or the other, we're going to bring you up so that we can fight about this is you're just going for another distraction. Ryan Holiday again from The Obstacle is the Way. You must persist and resist. Persist in your pursuit and resist the temptation to pull from the distractions that are taking your attention and focus away from what it is you're doing. You don't need another platform to develop your speaking skills, to learn how to articulate your ideas, how to write an outline, how to structure a call with your friends and to, to have a debate and to teach and to present. You don't need another platform to do this. 
The reason why I think people jump on other platforms is this. I'm not growing fast enough here. I hear there's a gold rush of easy followers and gems over there. Let me rush into that. And they're going to say things like, the audio quality is better, Chris. I'm like, you're freaking listening to this call on a speakerphone. You're telling me you're concerned about audio quality? You're sitting here calling in using a crackling mic with your mic hitting your hair and your shirt. You're telling me it's audio quality? Since when did audio quality become your primary motivation? So what is it about then? It's because we all just want to chase the easy win. You know, you can't win on YouTube. Guess what? TikTok, handing out followers, handing out views. So people rush in. It's exactly what's happening again. So you get over this whole perfection monster by moving away from the results, loving the process instead and being kind to yourself when you make a mistake, when you fail, to reinterpret the failure as a first attempt in learning. That's what fail stands for, first attempt in learning. And everybody that you look up to, every single person you look up to, was once where you are today, unsure of themselves, afraid, and inexperienced. The difference between them and everyone else, they took the first step. They started, and they did not quit. They persisted, they resisted. Back over to you. I I love this. And I think my first thing is like, okay, Chris, that sounds really great. And I'm I'm there now. Like I could see someone from the audience saying, that sounds beautiful. And you went through that hump. How do you persist and resist? Like what keeps you going? And I have my Martha answer to it, but I loved to hear your Chris answer. And I'll, I'll say mine. And I think for me, what changed everything was when my coach dropped this truth bomb that said, uh, pain pushes, but vision pulls. Like when you have a very clear vision of what you want and how that looks like and how it feels, you keep going because it's beyond just going over the pain. It's like you have this clear picture of what you want to be. Maybe it, does, it doesn't end up happening that way, but you have a vision. So you keep walking and that's what keeps you there. But I love to hear what, if I ask you like, okay, what kept you there, Chris? Yeah, I'm going to answer this question, but I think now's a good time to reset the room. We've been sitting here talking for almost an hour. Has it been an hour? Yeah, it's been an hour. Oh my gosh. Well. Okay. 58 minutes, but yes. <laughs> I can't think of a better person to reset the room and then possibly to give us a recap. Are you ready, Jewel? She's ready. Okay, go ahead, Jewel. All right. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Done is Better Than Perfect. Martha brought on this beautiful topic and she is interviewing the heck out of Chris to get his viewpoint because you know what? He's like a content terminator. He sets his goals and he goes after what he wants and he is obsessive. He has to win. He plays to win. And so overall, we're talking about this today because in the field of creatives, we like to brag about being perfectionists and it's worn as a freaking badge of honor. Like it's such a great thing. But the question is, what is this costing you? What is this costing you in your life? How you're showing up and your business It's probably actually costing you real dollars in your business. So we went into the idea of there are objective measures. When it's an objective measure, you can hit it. It's a clear sign. This is the bar to meet. You meet it, you're good. If you don't meet it, you know what you have to do. But when it's an internal measure, it's subjective. It's impossible to hit because as soon as you start getting closer, you just start moving the bar away and you keep moving the bar away. And so here are some signs that you might be suffering from this kind of perfectionism. Number one, 
You got paralysis by analysis. You want everyone to love your work. There can't be a single mistake. And what this means is you're not doing that IG video. You're not doing that carousel. You're not showing up. You're basically not doing anything. So then what do you have at the end of the day? Chris talked about how he posted one of his most famous carousels. I think he said it got over 30,000 likes on Instagram. It says how we are not wizards. Your first podcasts, your first video, your first article, your first photo, they're going to be awful. You have to get through that in order to make it. So face the fact that you might not be as good as you think you are. And this is the hard part. It's really hard for us to accept that we will suck for a while and that there is suffering and pain through that sucking. <laughs> so then he took a poll. How many of you strive to be innovative? And I think as creatives, we all think of ourselves as naturally innovative people. Well, here's the thing. In order to innovate, you have to make mistakes because innovation by nature is inefficient. Innovation is messy. Jeff Bezos has a fam famous quote he likes to say, which is failure and innovation are inseparable twins. So each time you go to bat, how about you improve one thing? Jim Rohn says success leaves clues. Chris likes to say failure leaves better clues. Now, it's okay to make a mistake. Just try new things as long as you learn from your mistakes. Keep doing and in the making, you learn. It's impossible not to learn. And you know what? Keep in mind that somebody out there right now is more successful doing work that is worse than yours. So you're really the only one keeping yourself from doing this, from making the money, from gaining that authority, gaining that expertise, becoming known. You're the one who's stopping yourself. Lastly, we just covered how Jack Canfield says, it's not as important that you achieve your goal as it is the person you become in the pursuit of that goal. You got to love the process and reframe the idea of failure being that first attempt in learning. If you liked this recap, stick around and see where we go next in the next. I don't know how much longer do we got about 30 minutes. Stick around and see. <laughs> I see Chris and Martha kind of waving their hands in the air. Yeah. So click the Future Pro Club up at the top. Follow the club if you like this conversation so far. Turn on the bell for the notifications of our upcoming events so you don't miss the next events. This is Jewel. Back over to you, Martha. Jewel, you are so amazing. So suave. So incredible. When I grow up, I want to be like you. Um, those recaps are amazing. <laughs> I'm making Jewel speed water. So sorry. <laughs> Those recaps are so amazing. And she, I'm like, I don't want to make her do anything that she hasn't promised yet. But she did say she was going to share some of those recaps with the Future Pro members. So if you're not a member and you want to get your hands into Jules' amazing recaps, I mean, there's a way. Go and join. Um, after my commercial, I'd love to, I see Jessica's here in the audience, and i love to start bringing in people to talk about this very hot topic. We were saying yesterday that it might get spicy because it's a, a touchy conversation. So i love to hear Jessica's question or comment. Hi, Jessica. Hi, you guys. Martha, Jewel, Chris, Lola. Oh my gosh, you guys. By the way, I'm a new member of the group of the Future Pro. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I have to get my little badge. I'm just so excited. It's absolutely amazing and and so much more than what Chris described. 
he needs to like really get out there and tell everybody. But anyways, okay, guys, this topic is so huge for me. And I keep forgetting, Jewel, that you used to be a wedding photographer, but I actually also used to be a wedding photographer. Or maybe you're just portrait. I'm not sure. But I was a wedding photographer. I gave up a six-figure job so that I could be a wedding photographer, built up, ramped up the first year. I had 42 weddings. I was like cranking it. And the perfectionism got the best of me. And it was through my editing. And honestly, you guys, it was twofold for me. So I've, I've taken so many notes because it's been amazing. Um, but for me, it was definitely one was the internal metric. So I really kept upping my standards. And I honestly felt like this I knew what was visually possible through Lightroom. I, I'm like, oh, I could take out this and I could add this and I could do a little bit more of this. Zhuzhing. I knew it was possible. So I couldn't just let myself just do partial way. It was like, every, but, but it kept getting more and more, right? Because every day I got better and better. So that internal metric kept moving. So that was a huge one for me that I really could not kick. And then number two was that, I got so I was really into Facebook at the time and posting the photos and the likes and comments, you guys, were like everything to me for my for my worth, for my value. I didn't have kids then. I would sit at the computer and as soon as I would post a photo and I got all these raving reviews, I was like, oh yeah, I freaking made it, you know? And so then that just kept that 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 obsession with perfection and i always say perfection leads to procrastination leads to paralyzation which is very similar to what you all have said and it's just been a huge thing for me and honestly i had to quit being a wedding photographer for that reason it was i i i allowed what they were going to what my clients were going to feel by the perfect quote unquote perfect photos be more important than my time and literally, I would spend all night, my husband was like, whoa, I don't even know how much time you're going to spend on this wedding, but it, it, it just kept getting worse and worse. So I want to ask you this, Jewel, Chris, Martha, Lola, whoever wants to answer, I would love to ask, because I've definitely changed my ways. I, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But what is that? How do you determine that 70 to 80% is good enough? I loved what you said, Jewel, where you were like, you know what? If I have a goal and I need to get that goal, then I just need to put it out. And I love what you said, Chris, about the quantity versus quality. Loved it. So how are you determining that and how you're just releasing that work and saying it is good enough? I would love to hear from you guys about that. Thank you for letting me come up on the stage with you guys. Love you. Awesome. So I would answer this. I think for me is, am I doing the best that I can with the resources I have and with the knowledge I have? And I think that has made a huge difference for me. The amount of growth I've experienced the past year alone has been amazing because I have done it so many times. I have had stopped myself to perfect my technique, my framework and my process. I wouldn't be here. And I think since I started my business, it's going to be a year in 10 days. Um, I have done over 30, maybe 40 brand strategy uh, workshops with people. And that was like beast mode for me. But I really, the repetition made me be so comfortable at it every time I add on to my framework. So for me, on what Chris said, like this quantity thing, it was like kind of in sports and you practice and practice and practice. That's how, how it feels. And now it feels second nature. Am I the best at it? Maybe not. 
And it's fine. There's people that do it better than me. Yes. Do I do it better than other people? Yes. So I feel like I started measuring to myself versus measuring myself to Chris or to Fabian Gayhalter that is also now a mentor thanks to Chris because I met him through Chris. So I think that like reminding myself what I'm doing this, why do I gonna get out of this and doing my best in every time, every time I do it has been the thing for me. And I love what Chris said about pursuing excellence or like falling in love with the process. I am falling in love with becoming better at strategy just for the passion of it. I had a client today that told me, I can tell that you love what you do. And that's like for me the best acknowledgement. Then she said, also, I thought it was going to be boring. And this was super fun. You made it fun. Thank you. So I think that for me has been the best. And that's what keeps me going. And again, like I'm not perfect and it's normal. I'm a human. So that reminding myself that I'm a human. So Joel, to you. Reminding myself that I'm a human. Yes, that's number one. I think that's pretty important. So here are two things, but maybe it's really just one thing. So I think we like to think that we have to get everything. We got to get everything right. We got to know everything. But it's really the question of, does this get the job done? So when I'm talking about 70 to 80%, does this get the job done? So regular clients, they don't see what we see. So at the end of the day, does this meet the expectations that the client has laid out in terms of what they want from you? If it does, you're probably at 70 to 80%. Now, when I'm talking about for myself and my own content, what I'll do is I keep revisiting my values. Why the heck am I doing any of this? Why am I on Clubhouse spending my life, like half my life on Clubhouse these days? So I check with people now and then because I need a reality check. Sometimes I go crazy. I try to cover like 20 bazillion topics in one clubhouse room and it's just not feasible. So I do the reality check. I ask myself, why am I doing this? I'm asking myself, does my audience resonate with what I'm trying to do? Because after the, at the end of the day, it always comes back to that same question. Does it get the job done? And that's really the key here for me. This is Jewel, over to you, Chris. Jessica, was that helpful for you? Very. I took I took notes on each of what you guys said, and it was very helpful. Thank you so much, Martha and Jewel. Well, beautiful. And I'd love to add one more thing, Chris, if that's all right. Yeah, go. Jessica, I think what you described was also, to me, the difference between love and addiction. So everything I've been hearing from Chris and Jewel and Martha around the why of the work and getting obsessed with that process, it's not about the reaction that you get from it. It's not about that like hit of adrenaline, the result. So when we're in an addiction moment, we are seeking that affirmation. When we're in a love moment, we are basking in the sort of real time experience of it. So maybe that's what it is, sort of outcome versus experience. And for me, when I focus on the experience of what I love to share and do, I get out of my own way. When I think about the outcome and that sort of hit that it's going to give me when someone receives it the right way, I obsess about trying to create something that's going to produce that result. And of course, we know you can never satisfy that. So I just wanted to add that as another way to look at it. You know what I love about that, Lola? And thank you so much for that point. Um, that just that just triggered the understanding for me of why it feels different right now, because right now I'm helping um, friends and clients that I feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it from a place of love with photography. Yes, it was the one client that I was helping, but it was, 
it was more of the addictive nature and the, oh, I know I could just do this better and, and I'm just going to get there. And it was very obsessive. So I really loved what you said. And thank you, Lola, because that helps me understand that I, why I feel different in the way that I have been lately than I was when photography. So thank you. Okay. So I wanted to answer your original question, Martha, before the break, before the reset, before the recap, and before Jessica asked the question. And your question was like, how do you, how do you continue? How do you persist in the obvious failure that you have? How do you do that? All right. So we need to have a different mind. We have to have be able to look at the problem or this challenge differently than the way we are normally coding the message. I personally think failure is a much better teacher than success is. Like when I succeed and people are like, oh, amazing, but I'm not getting any new feedback. I'm not getting any data points here. And one of, the one of the reasons why I do what I do now is because of a lesson I learned much earlier on in my life. So I'm at Art Center, I'm in design class, and I presume everybody thinks and works like me. We, we come to class after getting our assignment, doing the best work that we can do. And when I say best, it's literally like the best thing that I know how to make at this point in time. And I've been working on it all night long. So if I come to class and I show the work, and my instructor, the professor, says, this is great. You're amazing. You're God's gift to teachers. It would only confirm what I already thought prior to coming to class. I already thought that about myself. So I didn't learn anything new, right? Okay. And everybody's rolling their eyes right now. But when I show my work and the instructor says, okay, this scale, this is not working. Your rendering techniques are poor. This is out of balance. And actually you missed the whole conceptual point of the, of the problem I gave you. Now I have data points. I have things I know to incorporate the next pass. To me, it'd be terrible if I showed up on the first week of a, of a multi-part uh, week assignment for the instructor says, beautiful, what am I going to do the rest of the time? And then the bigger problem is what will I do for assignment number two? Because I got lucky. I did something and it worked. I don't even know what worked. So that's why I think failure is a better teacher. So those of you that are sitting on that piece never completing it, pushing the deadline out, worrying about what other people are going to say instead of just releasing it, you're only hurting yourself. You're robbing yourself of the learning opportunity. You're robbing others the gift of learning with you. You're robbing yourself of the data points. And I, I use that word very specifically and with intention. It's data point, right? We've talked about this before. I get a lot of data points from all over social media. Quite a few of them are negative. No lie. I just strip out the violent language and I just look at what the data tells me. So you effing a-hole, da-da-da-da-da, it should be bigger. <laughs> I can hear the it should be bigger part. Or where's the link to the full video? I can read that part. So I just strip out all the violent language because actually it's not data, it's just opinion. I look for the data and I use it to grow. And I could see very quickly, I would zoom past my classmates who were looking for affirmation, who were looking for a pat in the back. And they could not hear the feedback. They could not process the data points. So in, the, in their eyes, the failure left no clues, no instructions on how to succeed. I'll tell you something right now. I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at my account here. And the analytics tell me I've lost 2,600 follows last week. Last seven days, I lost 2,600 followers. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh my God, you're losing more followers than I get in a month or in a year. And it's true. But I got 8,619 
followers for a net gain of 6,000. I'm not sitting here crying over the unfollows. I'm also not celebrating with the follows. All I'm doing is showing up every single day, trying something to see if it works, right? I was at this point when I was creating content where I was like, oh, it's gotta be good. I mean, this is like the total sum of everything I am, everything I know, all that my professors ever taught me. And guess what? I would post once every six weeks. When I finally let go of that idea and I started to iterate, I would post once a day, twice a day, four times a day. I got a lot of valuable feedback as to what works and what doesn't. It's hard to argue against the numbers sometimes. And I would try new ideas. And in doing so, I figured out a formula. My account grew really fast. 10,000 followers a day. I'm sorry, a week. And it got me to this place where I'm over half a million followers, a place I never thought it would be. It allowed me, because people kept asking, how'd you do this? How'd you do this? Tell us your secret. It allowed me to author a class. So I run workshops teaching people how to do this. That's the benefit, the personal development, the monetary benefit, and the knowledge and the confidence that I know how to do this. It is a skill a lot of people seek. I almost laugh sometimes when I go into these how to grow your social media rooms, you know, in Clubhouse, and then you look up who's speaking and they've got like 5,000 followers. Like, what have you done? You know, I've tried, I've failed more times than you've tried. So I've learned a lot. That's how I keep going. I'm motivated by the lessons. I'm collecting lessons. Back over to you, Martha. Oh, Chris, I love what you said about collecting lessons. And I think for me, I think I mentioned this in one of the last calls that we had that my relationship to feedback had to change. And in order for that to happen, I started asking everyone for feedback. And I was like, I'm not going to want it, but can you please give me feedback? Can you please keep telling me how I am doing? Because I cried in my first, listening to my first coaching calls of me coaching. I was like, oh my God, no. And I even like, I had a confession that in my first big job opportunity thing that I was, we were 1500 people. And from those 1500, 80 made it to the very last stage and only five made it to the very, very last interview. And from those five, no one was selected. I was one of those five. And they asked me, do you want to know why we didn't pick you? And I said, no. (laughs) What a like huge missed opportunity on like really knowing, right? I was just too honestly too proud and too like egotistical to be like, no, F them. You know, it's so funny. But um, I was young too. <laughs> but um, I love what you said about like, okay, cool. That was actually the the gift that will help me grow. Um, but I want to pass this over to Jewel. She had something to say on it. Martha, you said no. I have bugged so many people to tell me why they didn't hire me. And they were like, no, I'm not telling you. We can't tell you for liability purposes. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so here's a question I have for all of you. When you talked about, you started asking everybody for feedback, that was actually the mode I was living in probably my entire life until about this year, like a year ago. And so here's my question is, how do you know who the right people to ask feedback is from? Because I don't think all feedback is qualified. And if anything, you gotta be careful who you listen to because they can easily point you in the wrong direction. They can tear you down. It's, It's a lot of noise. So how do you know who's the right people to listen to? Oh my God. I love this question. Like I'm going to, I'm going to let Chris speak, but I have to say this. I asked for 
feedback from the people that I was in the coaching training program for with. So these 18 people that were in the same mindset and the same program and knew the depths of my soul, these are the people I enrolled in getting in giving me feedback. So yes, I agree. I wouldn't ask FIBA from everyone. I had people tell me that this was the craziest idea what I'm doing now, like starting a business with debt because I didn't have savings. I didn't have a runway. I didn't have all the cool things that Chris teaches us to have. I didn't have them. And I still started this. So I might have gotten a lot of like, you're crazy, what are you doing out of out of this? And maybe a lot of protection from people that love me. So I chose to empower this 16 people. And of course, my partner, because also he's a coach. So I think it's really important. I agree to who are we empowering to hear from and who we don't. And I actually had to have boundaries conversation with my parents, which honestly wasn't fun. But I had to, because my dad and me have very, he's 72, we're in very different generations. I'm 32 for reference, and I'm the oldest in, in my, my siblings. So we are from very, very part of our generations. And I grew up in Mexico, it's a whole new ball game. And him seeing me like right now getting clients and not having retainers, like he's driving him crazy. I remember Chris's conversation with him and his dad, like my dad is still telling me like, are you crazy? Why would you do that? So I kindly remind him <laughs> that there's a boundary I'm not willing to cross and I love him and I am not okay with like him giving me advice on certain things. So I feel like being really clear on that is important. Even from the people that we love and love us the most, we are, it's okay to set boundaries. And Chris, I'll give it to you. All right. Very fair question, Jewel. There's a couple of ways to approach this. I'm going to tell you a, a couple different ways, and then I'm going to tell you my way. My way is just tough for a lot of people, okay? So for someone who is in a situation where you're getting a lot of unsolicited opinions and it's hard for you to process, you're confused, you're torn, it's up and down. Somebody says, I love it. Somebody says, I hate it. All those kinds of things. By the way, that's not feedback. That's not even data. It's just opinion. I'm looking for data. There's a very big difference, okay? And the data can come from unqualified places, in my opinion. But in your situation, what I would do is I would choose a handful of trusted advisors. Some people would call them mentors or teacher or a master. And then do all your due diligence to vet them and then just surrender. Because they're going to tell you to do things that are going to be counterintuitive to what you think you should do. And that's how you know you have a good coach and a mentor. Because a bad mentor coach or master will just tell you to do what you want to do. And you don't need to pay anybody to do that. You don't need to follow anybody to do that. You just do what you do. So assuming that you don't like what you're getting, you need to do something different, right? I think as Les Brown is like, if you if you like what you're getting, just keep doing what you're doing. And if you don't like that, then you need to change. And that's one way to do it. And I will tell you from my own experience, it is not necessary for the person, contrary to popular belief, to have done what it is that you want to do. It's not necessary at all. My business coach for 13 years, never can't draw, can't design, doesn't want to be an influencer. He comes from the, the world of radio advertising and writing. He can write a screenplay. It's got nothing to do with what I want to do. But it's his ability to objectively look at what's happening and say it to me in the way that I need to hear it, which is super straight and direct. It's also his ability to, to go out into the universe and pull in new ideas and offer them up to me to allow me to decide which ones I should try. This is the exact same coach who told me, go out and do public speaking, okay? Um, ask your clients what they want. Don't guess, okay? And Everything he told me to do, I just did. I didn't even question it. So there's no point in going to see a coach, a therapist, 
a trainer or a teacher only to tell the teacher how to teach you. There's no point. Now, here's the thing that I'm going to say that's going to probably go against what most of you think that you can manage. I think all the good ideas come from people where we don't want to hear them from. Like they come from people we're angry at that we don't like or we have prejudice or bias against. And the reason why they make us angry is because they say the things we already know in our heart that we, we must do, that we should do, but we're so afraid that when someone says what's inside our brain, we project our anger towards them. Okay, my wife tells me to do all kinds of things, some crazy things, some sound things. I have to filter through all of that to find the good from the bad, the gems from the stones. And I can do that. What I don't want to do is to stop her from giving me any ideas because I got no stones and I got no gems. I can filter through that. So here I am in the river of ideas, panning for the gold. So when my wife challenges me and she says, you should think about how to teach more people than the eight students that you have in your class, that was an offensive idea to me. That was an insult to me because I thought I was good at something. When Jose said, let's go make videos together, I'm like, no, you're a loud, obnoxious extrovert. Don't try to get me to do what you want to do. I see what you're trying to do to me. But once I give into that, the idea is good. The challenge was good. So I would rather be the person who gets to decide if, I, if this is a gem or a stone, if it's a rock or a jewel. See how I did that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.